This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, A Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, A Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists, and anyone with an open mind, on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence, and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Democrat Connor Lamb's victory in the special election for a Southwest Pennsylvania congressional seat is a stunning rebuke for Republicans. But Lamb is far from an ideal candidate. One of his ads, for example, featured a photo of him shooting an AR-15. So the race also raises a perennial debate between the left and liberal center over what kind of alternative to the Republican right we need. On the one hand, blue dog and establishment types will argue that Lamb's victory demonstrates that Democrats must run moderates to win in Trump country. But on the other hand, Lamb embraced organized labor— and labor played a huge role in his win. And so the truth, I think, is a bit of a mashup. So-called social issues are a challenge for the left in these areas. But it's also quite clear that there is a serious hunger for a staunchly pro-union Bernie-crat version of economic populism. Someone, in other words, who is significantly to Connor Lamb's left. This is Cecil Roberts, president of the United Mine Workers of America, speaking in Greene County, Pennsylvania, before the election. Let me try to explain to you what kind of folks we are and what kind of Democrat Connor is. He's a God-fearing, union-supporting, God-owning, job-protecting, pension-defending, Social Security-believing, Roberts touted guns and locking up drug dealers, but he also talked a lot about economic justice. Quote, the Bible tells us someday we're all going to be judged by how we treat the least of these. And the labor movement and the Democratic Party are about treating the least with respect and lifting them up. My guests today are Elizabeth Fiedler, Sarah Enamorado, and Summer Lee 
who are three leftist women running for state rep in Pennsylvania. They're running as Democrats, but all three are also DSA members, endorsed by their local chapters. This Friday's Diglett is part of my ongoing occasional series about how the left should approach the fraught terrain of electoral politics, and we have a lot more coming up, including an interview with Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Chakwe Antar Lumumba. Before we get started, please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. We don't paywall anything, and we depend on listener support to make it happen. So just hit pause for a second and go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I'll be here when you punch play again. Oh, and one more thing. If you enjoyed last week's interview with Patrick Blanchfield on neoliberalism and guns, the essay we were discussing is now out at Splinter, not New York Magazine. It's really good, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Okay, thanks, and here's the show. Sarah Inamorato, Elizabeth Fiedler, and Summer Lee, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having having us. You're all left-wing women running for the Pennsylvania State Legislature against Democratic incumbents. And I'll start with Elizabeth, who I know from my time as a local reporter in Philly and whose voice used to be in my head all of the time when she was a reporter at WHYY. Elizabeth, say a little bit about who you are, why you're running, and who you're running against. I am the mom of two little kids. I'm a former radio reporter for the NPR affiliate WHYY in Philadelphia. And I am running because I think that we can do better and we need to do better when it comes to a healthcare system, when it comes to education, when it comes to making sure we all have access to clean water and clean air. My family personally has really struggled to um, to get health care for my two kids and also for my husband and I. And it's so frustrating. We have an overly complicated health insurance system. And I really, like I said, I think that we need to do much better so that all of us can access health care, just very basically. And I know that you are running a positive campaign on your the agenda that you would like to bring to Pennsylvania, but you are running against someone who has some history of of controversy in the city and state. Can you say a little bit about uh, why you're a better choice for the district than him? My response would be that being a Democrat is not enough. It's never been enough to me, and it's certainly not enough right now, given the political situation in D.C. and in Harrisburg, in which so many of our fundamental rights are really under attack. And I personally, as a human being, am committed to fighting for working people, working families, working communities, and making sure that each of us has what we deserve to have in this life, um, which is, you know, enough money to be able to put food on the table and pay our bills and pay for the medications that we need pay for daycare, all of these things, and be able to do so much more. And right now we're really being shut out of a political system that's benefiting corporations and the super rich. And I've been working really, really hard across South Philly, knocking a lot of doors and 
honestly, just talking to people about that, introducing myself, telling them who I am and what I plan to do and getting a really good response from a lot of people, a lot of people. And so, like you said, I am running a positive campaign and I would add a campaign that's really driven by values. Um, you know, it's my name that's on the flyer. It's my face that's on the flyer. <laughs> I have to get used to that. Um, but this campaign is about so much more than that, right? For me, it's about um, it's about a political movement. It's about building power within our communities. And so for me, you know, this is about the big picture. It's about going to Harrisburg to represent South Philly families, but it's also about showing that we as working people can run successful political campaigns and win and govern. And just to try to pin you down slightly on this, why are you a significantly better person for that job than Representative Bill Keller? I'm out there knocking doors in the cold. I'm out there knocking doors sometimes with um, with my son who just turned eight months old. Uh, he's in the baby carrier with me. Um, I'm at every community meeting I can get to. I worked really hard on fundraising and had, I mean, we beat our goal in 2017. And I'm really committed to values and to working across the aisle and the urban rural divide. So, you know, I'm running to represent South Philly, a place that I love very deeply. And I actually grew up in a different part of the state in a much more rural part of the state. And I'm really committed to going to Harrisburg and working with people from other other places. People have different life experiences, right? Um, but who share this common need, this common desire to, like I said, back to healthcare, back to schools, back to clean water and clean air. So um, to working across the aisle and working across the urban rural divide and looking to the future, right? Imagining a new kind of politics and thinking really big about what we can build as opposed to um, as opposed to the past, as opposed to settling for things, but thinking really, really big. Um, so those things. And I'll mention that Pennsylvania, I mean, I'm sitting here with uh, Sarah and Summer. Pennsylvania is 49th in the nation in women in elected office. 49. <laughs> Second, Mississippi. That's pretty bad, right? So I think that in addition to my experience, my hard work, my good politics, the fact that I'm a woman, I absolutely think is also a strong, a strong thing. So we have a lot of work to do on that front as well. What's it like being on the other end of this uh, journalist-politician relationship so far uh, as a as a candidate? <laughs> pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a new a newfound uh, a newfound sympathy for your former prey? <laughs> I do, Dan. I do, but as journalists, I think it's so important that you ask the tough questions because that's really, um, and I'm serious about that. I mean, we need to hold people in elected office and people who are running for office to the highest standards when it comes to their politics and what they're going to fight for, and for who is funding them, right? That's really important, um, where people get their money from and what sources they rely on to fund their campaigns. Because whether, you know, whether we like it or not, money is something that's involved in our politics, at least raising a little bit, right, to print some of those um, flyers with my face and my name on. And, um, you know, we're really proud of the fact that we have hundreds of individual donors. So, you know, I think it's important that you ask the tough questions like that. What is the ground game like in South Philly? And how do you avoid making the race being like what happened? Not for people who don't live in Philly listening, not to get too deep into the Philly weeds, but it's a it's a neighborhood that's undergoing some transitions. It's a pretty diverse working class neighborhood, but that is 
gentrifying in recent years. And a few years ago, there was a race between this lightning rod local developer, Ori Feibush, and who's a white dude, and, and Kenyatta Johnson, um, a state rep who is is black and from, I believe, south or southwest Philly. That was really seen as this sort of like newcomer versus old timer race. How how do you stitch together a coalition across those divides? I think that a lot of these divisions that, you know, and, and just stepping back for a second, when I started to tell people I was running and then when I announced, I got a great response from a lot of people. And there were some folks who said, but wait, how are you going to be able to win over, insert adjective, insert demographic, insert, um, you know, racial group? How are you going to be able to win them over? Um, and it's really been by having face-to-face conversations at the doors, me personally, and then um, and our volunteers as well. That's really um, the, the response that I've received from people at the doors, honestly, has blown me away. It has been even more amazing than I expected. And I can tell you for certain that that has come from, it's come from a lot of people who span all of these different groups, right? There was a gentleman the other day who I talked to who's in his 70s and he's, um, he identified himself as an Italian-American. Um, his grandparents, multiple generations, live in South Philly. Um, his name's Lewis, like very much like if one imagined a stereotype of one part of South Philly, this is what they would think of. And he told me about how his mom struggled to afford the medication that she needed. And his dad has mobility issues and he's his primary caretaker and physically carries him up the stairs. And like, which is telling me about his life and said, yeah, and this is at the door. And then said, you know, I told him who I was and why I was running. He's lived there his whole life. So did his parents. And he said, I'm so excited to support you. Can I have a button? Can I have a button for you, for my parents? Sure. Can I have a window sign? I'm going to put it in my window because I am so excited to support you. And mind you, this is a person who I had just met like six minutes earlier when I cold knocked at his door and, you know, gave him my smiling face and my spiel about why I'm running um, and talked to him about politics. And I think that that's something that's really lacking from a lot of candidates and a lot of political campaigns is connecting on the issues, right? There's too many people are reliant on these old stereotypes and consultants and polls and all of that. When in fact, what I think we really need to do is focus on talking to people face to face and talking about the issues and not writing anybody off. Um, And so that's my long way of answering your question, but I hope it was useful. That's a great answer. It, it, you know, it turns out a lot of people of all different sorts don't like a viciously for-profit health insurance system because it's been a rather unpleasant experience for lots of people. Sarah and Summer, I believe you are both DSA members. Is that correct? Yes. We, I, well, I, I am a DSA member. Are you, Summer? <laughs> I am. Summer is a DSA member. <laughs> Together we are DSA members. And you're both running against... Uh, state reps with the same famous last name in Pittsburgh area politics, which is Costa. Um, or is it Costa? 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 Costa. Costa? Well, uh, maybe I can troll him by by mispronouncing his name. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. Same questions. Who are you? Why are you running? And who are you running against? Which, uh, which Costa are you running against? Damn. Okay. You're making me say his name. And that's kind of my rule is like, Mm -hmm. I don't like to say my opponent's name. I just like to talk about the issues and uh, the race. Because at the end of the day, it's about um, 
it's about the issues and the conversations that haven't been happening, but the real decisions that have been made being made in Harrisburg that are impacting people's lives. So um, my name is Sarah Morado. I am running in the I'm running for state house in the 21st district in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a lifelong Pittsburgher. Um, I grew up in the northern suburbs, which is actually the northern part of the 21st district. Um, I had a pretty cool, stable, middle-class lifestyle until I was about 14 years old. Um, that's when he found out my dad had an addiction to opioids. And that, uh, my mom, my sister, and I left him, and we experienced housing insecurity and food insecurity, and you really have a unique perspective on life when you can, when you have to go to work as a 16 year old and like legit put food on the table. Um, and, you know, as the first woman to go to college in my family, you know, I was told that if you just work hard enough during this time, if you can overcome this, if you can get an education, you're going to do all right. You're going to be able to get out of poverty. You're going to climb that economic ladder. And I graduated in 2008. Um, which you may know was not a good time for jobs. Um, and so during that time, I just, you know, I had to continue working so hard and working just multiple service jobs um, and piecing together an income that a lot of people have to do to support families and who don't have uh, the privilege of having a, <clears throat> going through um uh, and getting a degree from higher from higher education, and and, and so uh, your your movement towards uh, politics, both as a more, I guess, activist or whatever type person, and uh, and then running for office. It's a lot. I have a lot of unique lived experiences that I think are lacking in Harrisburg, and you know, I was fortunate to to get a good paying job and realize that there was a lot of work to do in Pittsburgh, and that I was in a place where I could start giving back and working in the nonprofit field. And what I noticed was um, in my four years in community development um, and environmental work, and then two years um, doing being self-employed and working with dozens of organizations, is that people are fighting on the front lines every day to solve poverty, to end mass incarceration, to make sure folks that are coming out of carceral systems have meaningful work, um, to make sure that uh, food policies are just and people can get <clears throat> meals on the table, um, that reproductive justice uh, is something that remains a, a human right. And those folks are on the front lines fighting hard every day and there's a lot of tables with a lot of conversations happening. And what's missing oftentimes are these higher level elected officials who could actually have the power to make real change and to make these folks' fights just a little bit easier. Um, and so that's really why I decided to run is that I want to be that person. I want to be the person who is sitting at the table along with people and listening compassionately and taking those stories and that messaging to Harrisburg when I'm making those votes, when we're deciding on what, where we're going to fund, <clears throat> what programs we're going to fund, um, and what kind of budget we're going to pass. Since you don't want to talk about Representative Dom Costa, I will say one thing <laughs> that I found for listeners' uh, edification, uh, an interesting quote from him. I think it's a recent quote. I believe in abortion for certain reasons, but not for birth control. 
You should be adult enough to watch yourself. That is that is true. That is the thing that he said. To watch yourself like on the screen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and, and this actually Dan speaks to a point where this campaign and campaigns like Elizabeth's, like Summers, like mine, can be agents for change. These are folks who have never been questioned. They have never been challenged in meaningful ways. They never had to um, answer to the votes that they've been making. And so when we have folks that challenge Democratic incumbents and they have to say, oh, you know what? I did vote in favor of that 20-week abortion ban. Um, now I have to actually face the consequences of that. I have to face the women and the allies to women who disagree with that. And we, um, that vote, um, <clears throat> SB3, was the bill that was um, being voted on um, in the House the, late last year. And he had traditionally voted in favor of it. He actually changed his vote this go around. And you, you have to say, like, that's probably because there was more eyes on him and the decisions that he was making. The importance of that can't be overstated. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Rhode Island, where abortion would be illegal tomorrow if uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned. Mm-hmm. Summer, hey. who are you? Who are you? Why are you running? And where are you running? And who is currently occupying that seat? I'm Summer Lee. I grew up in North Braddock, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. I'm running to be state rep for District 34, a seat currently occupied by Paul Costa. I personally am running against the system and structural inequality because I come from a community that has been starved of resources. I come from a community that has truly experienced just perpetual cycles of inequality and racism. And we have these insular communities where we have all these issues that kind of collide to create just a perfect storm of, of kind of barriers. I grew up in a community that used to have a lot of glory. Actually, uh, so Braddock, uh, another candidate in, in PA politics is uh, running from Braddock, is mayor of Braddock, but that's the town that I grew up in. Uh, we have a lot of pride in my town, but and just until very recently did other people look at my town and, and think anything good about it. When I was younger, I went to a, a high school, a public school that was desegregated in the 80s. So decades after wow. the Board of Education, our high school had just gotten desegregated. And from the town that I came from, we were like ashamed. Sometimes I felt shame going to the school with like more affluent white kids because I thought that they all looked down on me. And I, and I used to be ashamed of having to get like a free lunch. And I'm proud to say that I, I love where I'm from right now. I love my community. I am just so excited to just be back in my community after having gone off to college, gone off to law school. I am so excited to be back in my community. That's kind of how I got into this. So I'm running because I just, having grown up in this environment and I've navigated uh, I've navigated the world in a different in a different way than some other folk, uh, particularly the folk who represent us. I just, I know how important representation is in my community. When we talk about low voter turnout, when we talk about these issues, when we talk about leftist politics and we talk about radical politics, that's stuff that affects us, that affects me personally on a day-to-day. Healthcare affects me on a day-to-day, uh, affording healthcare, the living wage, uh, workers, parents in my community making 725 an hour. And then we wanna talk about how do we stem 
gun violence? How do we stop gun violence? How do we address uh, some of the issues, these deep issues that are going on in our community? And we can't do that without talking about equitable funding for education. Having come from the public school where we have metal detectors, where we have police officers who are in schools who are fully armed and fully dressed, and they're actually abusing children on camera, we can't talk about that without talking about the school to prison pipeline. We can't talk about what we can do with schools and how we can, or with children, and how we can better their lives without talking about opportunities for them, pre-K, without talking about where are the resources into our community and food deserts and health deserts. We can't talk about that without talking about the drilling that they want to do because 35% of the kids in my community have asthma. So I'm running because all of those issues are cyclical and they're all interconnected. And nobody wants to talk about it that way. Everybody wants to talk about one issue at a time. But in my community, all those issues are jumping us or tag teaming us. And if we solve one problem, if we only address one problem, it, we're not even scratching the surface because then we have these other problems that are, that are keeping us in, in this cycle. So I'm running because it's crazy that we've not had a black woman from Allegheny County serve as state representative. Mm. It's crazy that we're 49 for women. Uh, it's crazy that in the black community, like we don't, we've never had a mayor in Pittsburgh. We never had a black mayor, uh, but we are a part of the system. We are a part of this society and our experiences and our perspective is so important. It is so lacking when people create these policies, when people are divvying out funds, our communities are the first ones to be ignored. And Representative <laughs> Paul Costa, has he been attentive to, to these matters that you're prioritizing? I mean, honestly... I can't see it. I don't, I don't know Representative Paul Costa personally. Paul Costa's been in since 1999. Uh, from what I hear, he's a nice guy. He comes across as being nice, and, and I won't take that from him. I just think that the issues that I'm talking about right here, I will be able to address in a different way because I've lived them. I've lived them in a different way, and I've experienced it in a different way. I, I don't have a secondhand experience of some of the things that I'm talking about. There are a lot of folk who are well-meaning, but they don't understand it the way that I have. They don't understand welfare because they've never lived on welfare, and they don't understand the public school system the way I do because they had an escape, perhaps, and, and I didn't. So I, I just approach these things differently, and I look at them differently, and I bring a different perspective. Thank you. Yeah. And one thing I would uh, just add to uh, your your note about Braddock schools only being desegregated in, in 1980s is that in a sense, Philadelphia public schools, if we look at the metro area, have yet to be desegregated. And that's uh, true in in uh, in way too many big cities around this country. Absolutely. If you could all tell me about the importance of more assertively left candidates running for office including as democratic socialists in 2018, what that means, why you think it matters. So it's not enough to get up and for these elected officials to get up and just do their job. Um, we are far beyond that. We need people who are going to go and make a ruckus and stand true to their convictions and do quite frankly, do more and do better with um, that position. So, yeah, I think it's a lot of just holding folks accountable who currently are in those seats and saying, um, are you truly with the people? Um, because we are looking here at your votes and your record, and it's showing us that you aren't. And you we're not caring about the same things. 
Yeah. So for so for me, why I believe this is so important is because we just can't afford incremental change anymore. We don't have time in my community to wait for moderate politics to come through and to trickle on down to the communities that are most vulnerable and, and struggling the most. Um, I believe that in our community and, and the beauty of DSA is because it is that they're workers and we have a vision and a message that resonates with people. It's not just it's not just socialists that this message resonates with. It's people who don't even know that they're socialists yet. It's people who don't know that they're liberal yet. These are everyday messages that resonate with people who think they're conservative and with people who think they're liberal. It's anybody who believes that all children should have access to a quality education. That's not leftist, that's common sense. It's an intuitive policy. Um, anybody who believes that every citizen in the United States, every person in the United States should get health care, it's not radical, it's not even leftist, it's human rights. And other countries in the world, we're already there. Um, it's important that we get these folks to run and that we, those of us who are not afraid to move forward, support each other because that's the way that we change things. And, and, and we can do it faster than incrementally. There are positions, local level, where we can have immediate changes. And we've seen that in Pittsburgh. We've seen the DSA come in and back candidates on races like magisterial justice, uh, district judge come in have this groundswell of support and people from all different demographics and backgrounds and age groups um, and socioeconomic categories come behind this candidate because he had an inspiring message that was important and the message that we needed and, and politics that we needed. And they came behind them and they worked hard and we were able to give people victories that we had never seen and, and create kind of a blueprint for what we need to be doing. If we had, um, if we had more candidates to the left, more progressive candidates in borough councils and school boards um, and state houses, we could we can work together to start pushing our policies and our agenda more aggressively than people who are moderate or more in the center do. Um, they run oftentimes on some of these progressive ideals, but when it comes time to get in into seats, very quick to go to the right, very quick to go to the Republicans and reach across the aisle and work with them. But the Republicans are not quick to work with us. Those of us who are, you know, on the far left, as they, they say, are ready to go in and really push this agenda that the people want, that the people need. Um, we're really ready to advocate, to fight for, and to support the, these values and these uh, policies that we need in our community. And that's why we need to get more of us running and support us. And this is Elizabeth. Um, I would just add, I, I agree with what Sarah and Summer were talking about. And also, you know, for me, uh, in our campaign, the support of groups, uh, also like Reclaim Philadelphia, which is a group that is really focused on knocking doors and doing its part to build political power to fight back against some of these social inequalities that exist. Having the support of groups like that, uh, with whom I align on values, as, as Summer was just saying, about healthcare, about education, these are human rights. To me, they are are not, you know, it's not a political, there should not be a political divide on these things. And having the support of groups with that align on these values is really part of building a bigger movement. I know for me, you know, this is a campaign, my face is on the flyer, my name is going to be on the ballot, but it's about so much more than just getting me elected, right? That's the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. 
that's the beginning of it, getting the three of us elected and building toward a movement, getting more people to run and showing that it's possible, right? That's one thing that's really daunting as a person who's never run before, who's not part of the establishment. And so working to build a larger movement and movement-based politics is one of the reasons that it's so important to me to have the support of these groups that do the hard work of knocking doors and of moving on legislation too. And these are groups that worked like hell to get Larry Krasner elected, and he is now the district attorney of Philadelphia. So truly anything is possible. <laughs> Grassroots matters. Mm-hmm. There's power in people. You can throw money at these issues and you can throw money into politics. Uh, but if you don't get enough people, if you don't have the people backing you, then there is no power there. That's what we have to instill in folk. No matter what we're, what we're up against, we get enough people. If I get more votes than the guy I'm running against, then I win. Mm-hmm. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. It's a Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. The powerful wave of rage fueling Me Too has finally refocused public attention on sexual harassment and sexual violence and starkly posed questions of power, of feminism, and of politics. How do we define violence? How do we discuss and experience sex? Who gets to tell stories of sexual assault? And who gets to be heard? How impoverished is our language for describing the intersection of power, desire, and violence? What is the relationship between individual struggles and collective protest? What do we do with the abusers? In short, this moment has recalled a much older question. How do we get free? In this collection of new and previously published writings, leading activists, feminists, scholars, and writers describe the shape of the problem chart the forms refusal has taken, and outline possible solutions. Importantly, they also describe the longer histories of organizing against sexual violence that the Me Too moment obscures. Among working women, women of color, undocumented women, imprisoned women, poor women, among those who don't conform to traditional gender roles, and discern from those practices a freedom that is more than notional, but embodied and uncompromising. Contributors to this book include Tarana Burke and Elizabeth Aditiba, Lauren Berlant, T.D. Bhattacharya, Stephanie Kuntz, Melissa Jira Grant, Laura Kipnis, Gabriel Thompson, Larissa Pham, Alex Press, Jane Ward, and Tarian L. Williamson. Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. A Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. I want to talk about Pennsylvania. Um, Last I checked, Mike Terzai is still the Speaker of the House. Republicans control the General Assembly. We all remember what it was like when Tom Corbett was governor, who just instituted massive cuts to public education, which was it harmed schools across the state and sent Philly schools into just a spiral of, of crisis. And now there's a there's a Democrat in office, but he's a he's a fairly moderate Democrat and 
he has a legislature standing in his way for whatever good he might want to do. My question is how you all see the longer fight to transform Pennsylvania and what does that Pennsylvania of our dreams look like? Yeah, this is something that I like to talk about and what is not happening is I don't hear any of these folks who are in elected positions talking about what they want a future Pennsylvania to look like. No no one or very few folks are setting a vision and saying, this is what we're working towards. I just don't, I don't see that. And I, that's one of the main reasons why I am running and I'm, you know, I want to step up and I want to connect with people like Summer and people like Elizabeth who are also accepting that challenge and wanting to um, start to make decisions that are for the long-term benefit of folks in the Commonwealth and not just for the benefit of being elected and re-elected in two years, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of what you see. Um, I would say as far as vision, I want to see um, everyone have housing and that be considered a human right, whether you're a renter, whether you are moving towards homeownership. I want to see a comprehensive and compassionate solution to opioids, the opioid epidemic. It's been 10 years since my dad has died and we've only seen the body count grow exponentially. And it needs to move beyond just healthcare for um, drug addiction and mental healthcare. It needs to be healthcare for all, Medicare for all, for every single person because no family should ever have to choose between buying a bag of groceries and paying for their kids' asthma medicine. And we have a constitution in Pennsylvania that says that we have the right to clean air and pure water, and we aren't abiding by that. We're letting corporations walk all over us, and then we're giving them money. And what kind of broken system is that? Because at the end of the day, too, people are going to say, oh, you're lefties. How are you going to pay for all of this? Well, let's stop giving away. Let's stop just selling the soul of our state and of the people to these corporations. Um, yeah, that's kind of where my vision's going. I'm also going to say, just because I'm on a roll. <laughs> Rolling in the deep, baby. Rolling in the deep. <laughs> uh, right? None of this, we're not going to see any of this be achieved long term if we don't change the face of government. And the way we change the face of government is that we get corporate money out. We get um, good people elected. We start to set campaign uh quality campaign finance roles and increase transparency and access to information um, from citizens to government. So, yeah, so we bring people up. This is Elizabeth. Uh, I agree. We need to get corporate money, big money out of our politics, and we need to put people in office who really want to do the hard work. People are really committed to you know, things like healthcare, jobs, cre- creating family sustaining jobs, right, that have uh, at least a $15 minimum wage, supporting unions. I mean, people who, like us, I would say, who are not afraid, who are not afraid to go in there and demand these things and to propose bold policy ideas and to do it because we are driven by a desire to make our communities better, right? None of us are driven by this, um, you know, ego-driven desire to have our name on the door and like we will have finally made it we want to get there and do the hard work and that's why we're going and that's the kind of that's what i think it's going to take to make pennsylvania a state that i really deeply love make pennsylvania be 
what I would like it to be, which is a place where the government is really working for the people, where, you know, taxes are not on the backs of poor and working families, but are, you know, on, on the wealthiest people and places where, you know, so that we all have access to these things that are absolutely our human rights. I want to ask you all about two other issues that are big in Pennsylvania. One is the debate over fracking. And the second is the issue of of mass incarceration in the state. Obviously, it was a huge victory when Larry Krasner won in Philadelphia. But uh, while it's the DA that, that files charges in criminal court, it's the state legislature that deals with criminal statutes. And currently, according to the most recent data I have in front of me from the state DOC, there are 50,000 105 people in some form of of, of state uh, correctional facility as of the most recent data. And uh, I don't and, and that's an enormous increase from the 1980s and even early 90s. So um, I guess tackle that in reverse order, a mass incarceration and then fracking. <laughs> so we talk about how, you know, we are going to fund things. We're spending more on mass incarceration in Pennsylvania than we're spending on higher education. This is about priorities. This is about investing in people before they descend into, you know, struggle, lives of struggle and desperacy and all that. In Pennsylvania, I mean, in my community, so my community has actually been affected by, by mass incarceration and fracking. We, we've been hit hard by the both of them. We had these debates about legalizing marijuana, which I think needs to happen. But I also think we need to talk about what are the mechanisms that we're going to put in place to restore the folk who went to jail for a really long time back on the war on drugs when that hit my community. What are the mechanisms in place to get them released, to get them restored, and get them back to being uh, contributing citizens to their families, to their communities, and to society? That's what I'm most concerned about when we talk about mass incarceration. Um, We know that these policies disproportionately affect uh, communities of color, communities like mine, uh, cash bail. We know that affects poor folk. Um, we know that it's crippling people who are already the most vulnerable. And and we need to move past this system that we're always, our, our first resort is always to lock people up, to throw away the key, to, to, to build more prisons. We had to slow down. And not only do we have to slow down, like we need a moratorium on fracking, we need a moratorium on sending folk to jail. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to shift. We need to shift our priorities in that sense. Like Summer said, we spend more per capita on prisoners per prisoner than we do uh, per student in the state. And so, what does that say about a vision that we want to set? Um, and then we are consistently contracting with um, private corporations to administer the management of these carceral systems. So of course they want to keep a supply of folks going in there because that's how people are making money. Mm -hmm. And then when folks are coming out, one, we're not, I don't want to necessarily cut funding for restorative practices that would happen in jails, but what we're seeing is that that isn't happening and then folks are getting out and then they're getting oftentimes that's not when that's when their sentence truly starts because we've tied transportation funding to license suspensions and folks can't get a job they've been priced out of the the city centers where all the jobs are so what are they supposed to do they can't get 
back on their feet and be a productive member of society. So of course they go back to making money any way that they can and therefore back in the system. So it is working exactly how it is designed to work. And I would like to say this, this is a controversial point. <laughs> when we talk about drug, like drug dealers in my community, because obviously I come from a community where that's a thing, uh, we can't talk about that and we can't act like this is isolated from their, their, um, the outlook that they have on life. So if you are facing a lot, if you are facing this, uh, a situation where you went to, you went to school, you went to a school that didn't prepare you, you couldn't read in second grade. In the second grade, what do they do when you can't read? They send you to the third grade. And they send you to the fourth grade, and then they and then they graduate you, and then you or you age out of the system, and you finally drop out. And these people are not prepared to do jobs to go to college, so they are left with those jobs that only make seven twenty-five an hour because we won't increase the minimum wage. I might sell drugs too if that's all I can get. Seven twenty-five is just not enough to live off of. But what we're not doing is we're not reaching these young people and letting them know that I understand your situation is desperate. Let me help you. I understand that you're doing this not because no one goes into selling drugs into lives of crime because it's just like, you know what, I really just want to, I really just want to uh, mm -hmm. pump my community with, with, with drugs and crime. No, they're doing it because they're desperate, because they have to feed mm -hmm. their families, because sometimes kids are responsible for the adults in their families who are incapacitated, or they might have children, or even themselves, and, and the, the, the job market that we have in our communities, where we don't have uh, as many jobs in our communities, and we don't have transportation and infrastructure to get us out. These, this, these are the prospects for them. So they go to jail, and then it's a cycle. They don't learn in jail. They're not being educated in jail. They're they're being exploited while they're in jail. The state is making money off of their uh, off of labor in jail. It's not just our state, but in 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 the United States, that's how uh, th that's where they are getting money from. And then nobody is preparing them to get out of jail. And then my community is getting left behind because we're losing people who could have otherwise contributed to uh, to homes and to families. And this is Elizabeth. I'd add, um, you know, when we talk about mass incarceration, when we talk about fracking, when we talk about health care, so many of the problems in these systems come back to corporations, right? Big corporations and very rich people who are taking from us, who are profiting off of our suffering, who are taking resources out of our natural land and leaving destruction behind and potentially polluting waterways. And I personally am tired of it. I'm sick and tired of it. Um, as I mentioned, my family struggled to get health care. And uh, one of the pipelines that they're building through, um, through Pennsylvania, they're actually building through my parents' backyard. Um, it's the house that I grew up in. Uh, it's where my sisters and I, you know, it's the land we played on when I was little. Um, my children will never know that land in the same way. And there are people in my community where I grew up um, back there and across Pennsylvania who are terrified about this stuff, right? They're terrified of these huge corporations coming in, drilling in their backyards and potentially polluting their waterways, tearing apart their roads, not bringing the promised jobs. And this is actually something I hear from people in South Philly, um, people who are pissed off about this, who say like, are you kidding me? We're letting this big corporation and come in and do that and then leave, leave us with the bill. Um, it doesn't make sense, right? It's not the vision of our state that I wanna see. I think that we need to be supporting people, every single person and, um, and just stop allowing corporations and the super rich to get away with destroying our land and profiting off of our mm -hmm. healthcare struggles. Yeah, and and mass incarceration also obviously is um, is 
is something that's outrageous in mm -hmm. just the money that people are benefiting off of locking people up. Um, it, it's unacceptable. And so both of these can be distilled down to issues of economic justice, right? So we don't have good jobs in all communities, then folks turn to illicit behaviors and end up in the system. When um, someone knocks on your door in a rural part of Pennsylvania and you're struggling to pay all your property taxes and the farm isn't doing well, and they're saying, but we could give you millions of dollars if you let us drill, of course, of course you're going to sign your name on that dotted line. Um, and that's because we have failed as a state and as a governing body. We have failed our people, that that's the choice that they have to make. We're giving people impossible, impossible choices. Mm -hmm. And not truly choices, right? Unless we have a bold job creation plan, unless we have fully funded schools in the neighborhood, unless we have real things like that that support people and really fund our social institutions. <clears throat> So yeah, before I say something else, can I just throw out a disclaimer that Summer Lee and Summer for PA does not actually condone drug billing <laughs> or drug use. And I would not actually I would not actually sell drugs. So make sure that you put that out there when um, the costas say, look, Summer will sell drugs. Just wanted to see. Unlike the host of this show, uh, T-shirts I own, uh, one one is uh, nice people use drugs. I gave a talk at a conference recently in defense of drug dealers. So I'll take I'll take the hits on that. Um, yes. I mean, I'm going to defend them too because I think they're transferable skills and I think that we need to help yes. that money. Flip it yes. and put it into entrepreneurs. Let's get that money and put it into legitimate businesses. Other communities have done that. Yeah, people are uh, hustling incredibly hard for less than minimum wage. It's like – Inc uh, outrageous exploitation. But no, I just want to say something about the fracking real quick. So, oh yeah, um, my community recently found out um, through like newspaper articles that they. So we have a steel mill, like um, the steel mill, like the United States steel mill that put the country on the map in Braddock, PA, um, the Edgar Thompson steel mill, and that mill is also one of the contributing factors to you know the thirty five percent asthma rate that we have in our community and it's also just a staple but it's also a staple in our community it's kind of like a part of the fabric of of the community and in, in our district and a couple of our communities in our district but now we found out that they're going to also uh do the drilling on one of the quadrants of of this uh steel mill that steel mill spans four different communities only two of them are my district and the crazy thing about this is that when those two municipalities came together and, and basically signed off on this, the other two municipalities weren't even invited to the table because it's not technically happening in your community. But we also know that the effects of the drilling, uh, the effects of any health ha um, hazard go beyond you know the imaginary boundaries that we make up for our municipalities. Mm -hmm. If you live right next door, you're gonna be affected just a, even though your township might have another name, you're still just as, as affected. The narrative right now and kind of the community battle that we have is that if we don't do this this fracking, if we don't do this drilling, like uh, Sarah and Elizabeth have said, you know, we're going to lose jobs. They're, these are these are jobs at stake that we need to contribute to. And I want to say that I believe that all three of us, we believe in jobs. We believe that people should have good union jobs. But we also believe, and I know, that the people in my community deserve good air and mm -hmm. good water. We have to stop making this an either or. You either get jobs or you get a, a clean air. 
-hmm. And it's not fair to keep putting that on poor communities that this is what you have to live with. These are your only options because we know that in insular communities, we're already stuck in these communities. We don't have the same exit strategy that other folk might have because of these systems of inequality. So we are the ones that are always left behind um, to deal with the effects when the jobs, when, when the fracking is over and these short-term jobs end. We are now left with the, with, the, with the health effects. Our community now has another legacy of environmental you know, disaster or environmental hazards. And I think that we need to strike a balance and we need to talk about very in a very real way, how are these communities gonna move into the future? Acknowledging the past, acknowledging the industry that's there, but also preparing folk for, for, clean, for a clean future. Okay, lightning round before I cut you guys off. Anything? Anyone have any um, last things that they had uh, notes on in front of them uh, that they're that is burning a hole in their? Any lightning? Um, this is Elizabeth. <laughs> this is Elizabeth. I would uh, one thing I'd like to add, and this is something that we've been talking about, is this notion of viability. Is a candidate viable? And that was something that I heard from some people in the beginning um, when I just first decided to run. And I think that it is so important that as people, as people who believe in healthcare as a human right, education as a human right, clean water and clean air, that we step up and support people who are running for office or who we think should run for office in our communities. I think that's so essential, right? That's how we're going to get new people in office who will really fight for us. And this notion of viability um, whatever that word means to you. Um, well, it's stopping a lot of people who would be really good elected officials from running. And so I think it's really, you know, it was a challenge to, to um, push past that. So look, we, we, we have this thing where everybody says, you know, it's so important to vote. You got to vote, you got to get out and vote. That's true. But stop telling people to vote if you're not also going to tell them to run. If you don't have anybody to vote for, you can run. Support those folk. We need to, to help people understand that when people don't have your best interest, your community's best interest in mind, get rid of them. We can get rid of them. We can do that. We can run campaigns, but we have to support each other. You have to support women candidates. You can't say trust black women, but then don't support our, can our candidacies. You can't say trust women, but not support our candidacies. So click on the links. Find us on, on social media. I'm summerforpa.com, summer, <laughs> summerforpa at every social media platform. You can find Sarah for PA. Elizabeth, what's yours? Fiedler for Philly. Fiedler for Philly. <laughs> Check us out. Uh, look and see what we're about. If you're in our areas, come help us knock on doors. We can't win without the numbers. We, we mm -hmm. got to knock on more doors than the incumbents do because they, they have these names and they have this establishment and system behind us. So we got to knock more. We got to work a little harder. And we got to ask you for a couple dollars. You can throw that in there if you want. But please, if you feel so inclined, <laughs> support us. That's how we As win. we support our communities. <laughs> Sarah and Amarado, Elizabeth Fiedler, and Summer Lee, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Elizabeth Fiedler, Sarah and Amarado, and Summer Lee are leftists running for state rep in Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the state need not be the committee for managing the affairs of the whole bourgeoisie, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever it is you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, and so does spreading the word to your friends. All forms of propaganda on The Dig's behalf are greatly appreciated. And please find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help.